Well, let's pray. Father, we are, are gathered together uh, to worship you as the Lord over all. And we praise you and thank you that you have established your throne, your kingdom, that does rule over all in your son. Jesus himself has said that all authority in heaven and earth is his. And because we are sharers in him, because we are made in him to be kings and priests to our God, we have a calling to bear testimony in the world. As Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you with the confidence that the one who has all authority in heaven and earth is with us. Lord, you have pledged that you stand in the midst of your church, that you empower it, that you lead it, that you strengthen it, that you give it all that is necessary for the work to which you've called it. And we thank you, Lord, that that provision, that grace is sufficient for us. I pray that our hearts would be full today as we gather. I pray that you would instruct each one of us today in a way that will enliven and uh, enrich our hearts, our minds, and our walk with you. We pray that you will meet each one according to his understanding, that you will minister to each one a clearer, a truer, a more compelling sight of Jesus our Lord, the great high priest, who from his place of authority over all is continually interceding, not just for his saints, but ultimately on behalf of the whole creation and its destiny to be summed up in him. Father, lead us. Help us, give each of us ears to hear, minds to understand. Bear fruit through this time, and may our worship be pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've said, we've been uh, considering the Davidic covenant, and the focal point of the Davidic covenant is this idea of the kingship. And I said last time that the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, was the most significant development uh, after Sinai, I believe, in terms of God's revelation of his purposes and his dealings with the sons of Israel. And I mentioned last time as well, and hopefully you all understood this and have thought about it maybe even, but uh, the Davidic covenant is not a movement away from Sinai. It's not just a separate distinct covenant but it's actually a development in God's dealings in the world. Uh, and it builds out of the Abrahamic covenant. It builds out of the Mosaic covenant. So as I say in the notes, the Abrahamic covenant, as we've seen, even in our movement through the book of Genesis, pledged royal descendants to Abraham. It had the idea of royal royalty, a, a kingdom, kings, princes, a kingdom land and, and royal descendants, it had that at the center of God's promise to Abraham. And those promises to Abraham were later confirmed to Abraham's descendants, uh, the national people of Israel at Sinai. So what we call the law of Moses or the covenant at Sinai was just the way in which God was confirming 
his promises, his commitment to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants, uh, several hundred years down the road from Abraham. And in that making of the covenant with Israel, God said to them, if you will keep my covenant, then you will be a kingdom of priests. If you will conform to my covenant, which identifies and prescribes your sonship. Remember God said of Israel, the Abrahamic people, Israel is my son, my beloved son. And Israel's sonship being implemented, being lived out, would look like a royal priesthood. If you will keep my covenant that defines and prescribes your sonship, then you will manifest this priestly, regal life, presiding over my kingdom in a way that will bear testimony to the rest of the nations. So the Davidic covenant then presupposed those promises. It comes in the context of the Mosaic covenant. David was the one in whom the kingship was really formally established. Saul was the first king in Israel, but in a way kind of an illegitimate king. His kingship in terms of God's recognition of it did not last very long. David was the king of God's choosing. He was the anointed of the Lord. So the kingship as a development in Israel's life and history came in connection with David. And it's in that context then that God makes his covenant with David, specifically as David was seeking to build a house for the Lord. Remember, David had brought up the Ark of the Covenant, which in Israel's thinking represented God's throne. God was enthroned between the wings of the the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant's cover. And when David brought up the Ark to Jerusalem, he was in that way enthroning Yahweh, the God of Israel, on Mount Zion. He was establishing God's dwelling place in Jerusalem. And it was in the context of that desire then to build a permanent dwelling, a uh, permanent sanctuary in Jerusalem for the Lord's uh, ark, for God's dwelling place, that this Davidic covenant came, God's covenant with David. So it, it stands in the context of the promises to Abraham and, and the Israelite covenant at Sinai. It doesn't move in a different direction. It further develops these ideas by focusing them in David himself and his kingship and his kingdom. So as we saw last time, if Israel was a regal and a priestly nation, and they were, that's what their sonship was all about, set apart wholly to the Lord for the sake of his purposes in the world, then those same qualities were preeminently true of David as Yahweh's regal king, his image son. The king was the preeminent Israelite. If these things were true of the nation, they were preeminently true of the nation's king, David himself. So God's covenant with David then took up into itself all of God's previous promises, all of his covenantal provisions. And this is why you see in the scriptures subsequent to the Davidic covenant, the the scriptures associate God's faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to do what he said he was going to do in the world. The scriptures associate that faithfulness with his faithfulness to David. God will be faithful to David. 
He will be faithful to David and the promises he made to him. He will keep his faithful mercies to David. So David becomes the focal point from this point forward. Even as I said before, to the point where the, the, the promise of this coming one this one who becomes identified as the branch of David. Remember the Davidic covenant promised a son to David through or in whom God would build a house for David and through whom uh, God's own house would itself be built. This one is the branch of David, the shoot of David that comes out from him. And this particular individual is so tightly connected with David and the promises to him that you'll see the scriptures often refer to that individual with the name David. Because David has his own destiny in relation to him. So what I wanted to do today, we talked about the Davidic covenant the last time, but I want to draw into it today the priestly implications of that. And as you know, if you, you were here last time or you're familiar with Second Samuel 7 in the Davidic Covenant, it doesn't really deal directly with the priesthood. It doesn't in any way implicate David or uh, the promises to David in a priestly way. But there are a couple of ways in which we see uh, this priestly idea being brought in. And the first is what we saw in David himself. Remember again that David, the king, who conquers Jerusalem and takes that city to be uh, the city of the living God, he even names it after himself, the city of David, the place where the Israelite king makes his throne, which means that's the place where Yahweh is to have his throne because the king of Israel is presiding over God's kingdom on God's throne You see David as he now, in a sense, enthrones Israel's God on Mount Zion. He brings up the ark to Jerusalem, acting as a priest. He's wearing the priestly ephod and offering sacrifices while they're bringing up the ark to Jerusalem. So David's own actions in installing the Lord in Jerusalem on his throne there, so to speak, is done in the context of priestly ministration. But we also see that David is preeminent, as the king of Israel, is the preeminent Israelite. And as I've already said, if Israel is a royal priesthood, if it is a nation of regal priests, then you would expect that to be true of the king as well. If David is the preeminent Israelite and Israel is son of God and the king is preeminently the son of God, the one who exercises the Lord's rule over his kingdom, then you would attach that same priestly idea to the king himself. If Israel is a regal priest, then the king of Israel is preeminently a regal priest. And this does take us then all the way back to the creation account. We saw as we began in Genesis 1 that even Genesis 1 and 2 establish this regal quality or this regal function within man's nature and role. God created man in his own image and likeness. For what purpose? Just because he felt like it? No. He created them that way for the role to which they were appointed. He created them male and female in his image and likeness for the role to which he created them, which is to preside over his creation. 
You read this in Genesis 1, right? They are to rule over the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. Over all of God's earth, man is to be the, the one who exercises God's dominion. And while that creation account doesn't mention a priestly function directly, it's implicit in it. It's implied in it. How so? Well, because if human beings are administering God's lordship, they're acting as mediators between God and his creation. They are God unto the creation. And in the same way, the creation's relationship with God is back through man. So the human role is a priestly role inherently. Administering God's own life and love and wisdom and lordship in the world, but also, in a sense, bearing back to God the creation's own devotion, its own flourishing, its own faithfulness, its own worship in that sense. So even though the, a priestly idea isn't uh, stated explicitly in the creation account, it's implied in the human function. Man was created image bearer to be image son, which means priests and kings to our God. And we'll see even as we close today and read from Revelation 5, that that's exactly what is gotten at in John's vision. The one who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And what has he done? He has secured for God a human race that will be priests and kings to their God, and they will reign on the earth. So mediated lordship and even bearing back then from the creation side, mediated worship is the human role. That's what human existence is all about. If we say, what's the meaning of being a human being? Why did God create us? Why are we even in his own image and likeness? Well, this is why. And this is why Jesus, who is the true man, and I'm not going to prove all of these things today. Hopefully we understand this uh, from the New Testament. But Jesus, who is the consummate man, even in his resurrection, he is the preeminent priest king. And I think most all Christians agree that Jesus is the enthroned priest king. Romans 8, right? Other passages. But also... His being a priest and a king is not just him alone, but as the true man, that destiny, that inheritance that he has uh, inherited is our own inheritance. We saw this throughout the, the epistle to the Hebrews. We are heirs of all that Jesus has inherited. His priestly kingship at the right hand of the father with all authority in heaven and earth being his is what we are appointed for to rule and reign with him in that sort of way this regal priestly function the vocation of that is the destiny of the renewed human race this is i give you the citation here of first peter 2 Having come to Christ, the living stone, you as living stones are being built into a spiritual house. We're getting back to that building of Yahweh's house idea, right? You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for God's own possession. So Peter recognizes that all of these things have found their fulfillment in Jesus and through Jesus in people who are joined to him in a renewed humanity. 
So David is shown in the scriptures to be the preeminent prototype of the Messiah. The Messiah being the man, the image son in whom Israel, which was God's regal priesthood, the one in whom Israel would become Israel indeed. This is Isaiah 49, other contexts like that. And so it was necessary if David is the prototype of that one in whom Israel becomes Israel indeed as royal priesthood. It's necessary that David should be distinguished as a priestly king. And we see that in his life. This is why David can offer sacrifices and God be pleased with him, whereas Saul could not. And later on, Uzziah will not be able to. David is distinguished uniquely as being able to do that because of his typological function, his prototypical function in being the the great prototype of the Messiah. So that aspect, the priestly aspect of David's kingship, particularly in terms of its prophetic significance, finds its great articulation in Psalm 110, which we read. That psalm presupposes the Davidic covenant. It was penned by David, and it presupposes this covenant that God has made with him. And so what it does is it gives us insight into David's own sense of the covenant that God had made with him, what and who this person God was promising to him would be, and what his own relationship would be with that person. So again, as we've seen in the Davidic covenant, God promised to David, David wanted to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. And through his prophet Nathan, the Lord said, no, you won't build this house, but I will build a house for you. And we talked about all of that last week, so you can go back and review that if you want. But the Lord said, no, I will build a house for you through this son but that this son then will ultimately be the one who will build a house for me. And he will build it in the context of an absolute everlasting peace and rest that I myself will secure. The Lord said, I will give you rest from all your enemies on every side. And then this son in that context will build a house for me. And we saw that the first level fulfillment of that was Solomon who built the temple in Jerusalem in the context of peace. He was the king who reigned in the context of Israel's peace over David's kingdom. Well, in Psalm 110, then we see a unique king being presented who David exalts as his own Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right? So this king, David exalts him as his Lord, and Yahweh exalts that one as his co regent, if you will. He exalts him to his right hand, the place of all authority and power. And interestingly, in the psalm, that one, that king that David identifies, overcomes his enemies by vanquishing enmity. He overcomes his enemies by vanquishing enmity. If you look at Psalm 110, it says in verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. The scepter was the, the, the staff that the king held. It was the sign of his authority and power, his sovereignty. 
And he says, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter. Speaking of this king that David is mentioning, he will stretch it forth from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. He will overcome his enemies. How? Your people will become a free will offering in the day of your power. If you recall in Israel's life, the free will offering was an offering that, the, that an individual Israelite would bring of his own volition. It wasn't mandated. It wasn't a sin offering. It wasn't something that God required. It was an offering of worship, of devotion, a free will offering. It was something that an Israelite could bring to the Lord just because of the, the, the exertion of his own heart, his devotion to God. It wasn't required. It was an act of free worship and devotion. And this ruling in the midst of the enemies is tied to this principle of these enemies becoming God's people who, who become in themselves a free will offering in the day of his power. This is reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount, and I won't go, go into that. But the promise here is a triumph that will come by the transforming of human hearts, not by military conquest. So you still have the same idea of a king who is unique and is exalted, who God sets apart and distinguishes, and who will rule in the context of a peace as God gives to him peace and rest from his enemies. But how does he deal with the vanquishing of the enemies of his king and of his kingdom by rendering them free will offerings, transforming their hearts? And then he exercises that rule as an inviting priest. You are a priest forever but a priest according to a new priestly order, not the order of Aaron, not the order of Levi. All the priests in Israel were Levites. This is a priest of a different order. And if you recall from Genesis 14, Melchizedek was the king priest, priest of God most high, king of Salem. A different priestly order. This was well before uh, the law of Moses, well before the Aaronic priesthood. This is in the time of Abraham. And the scripture, it's only just a couple of verses in chapter 14 of Genesis that speak of Melchizedek, but he's introduced as this unique priest to whom Abraham himself pays tithes. Someone who is superior even to Abraham, the covenant son in whom God has just given a massive victory over a coalition of kings. With a few hundred men out of his household, Abraham conquers this coalition of kings, and yet now Abraham pays fealty to Melchizedek. But he is the king priest. He's the kind of uh, uh, prototypical or uh, archetypal king priest. And in this psalm, David says of this one, this who is his Lord, who's exalted to the Lord's right hand, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So if this psalm, which was widely regarded as messianic in the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth, and you see even Jesus himself citing this 
when he's being questioned as to who he is, and there's all this kind of going back and forth, he asks the Jews, he says, let me ask you, whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, he's the son of David. And he says, well, then how is it that David calls him his Lord if he's his son? How is it that David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand? So Jesus cites Psalm 110, and the Jews don't say, oh, that psalm's not about the Messiah. They don't know how to answer him. But my point in mentioning that is just to say that widely in Jewish circles as part of the Jewish tradition in the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth and even in his own generation, Psalm 110 was viewed as a messianic psalm. It was speaking about the coming Messiah who is the son of David. But if that's the case, if it does indeed speak of David's covenant son, then it reveals that the Davidic covenant didn't simply look to the distant future, which David understood, right? We saw that. David, as he prays to the Lord after God makes this covenant with him, he says, you have spoken to your servant of the distant future. But the covenant doesn't just look to the distant future, but importantly, to a future beyond the law of Moses, beyond the Israelite covenant because it involves a new priesthood. And a new priesthood implies a new covenant. Remember when we went through Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that the law, the Israelite covenant was founded on the priesthood. So if there's a change of priesthood, there is by implication a change of covenant. And that's the argument he's making there. He says, Jesus, if he were a priest according to that covenant and that structure, he couldn't be a priest at all because he was of the wrong tribe. Jesus was a descendant of Judah. No one from Judah was a priest. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. Levi and Judah were brothers. You couldn't be a priest and a king. You'd have to be descended from two brothers, which is impossible. So the writer of Hebrews is making the point that this that the scripture saying that this messianic figure this son of david by being a priest according to a different order it's pointing to the fact that he will preside over a new covenant a a renewed or transformed covenant structure as God restores David's house and throne and kingdom. So what God is promising then when you take Psalm 110 and you attach it to the Davidic covenant What God is promising is the end of the present Israelite kingdom, which we know is coming to an end, right? Beyond David, we'll see that. David's house and throne and kingdom will be coming to an end. But what's going to come out of that is not the restoration of David's house and throne and kingdom in the former form, but a different kind of renewal, a new dynasty for David, a new throne, a new house, associated with a new covenant relationship with God. Not the revival of the former order. That was a big reason why the Jews tended to miss Jesus in his own generation, is they were expecting the Messiah to restore Israel according to its former order. And he wasn't going to do that. So when you add Psalm 110 into the Davidic covenant, you not only see how the priestly part is incorporated, but you see how it shows that this is to be something very different 
than what Israel had known and what they were expecting. Well, then the Zechariah context, and again, what, what I'm citing here from six, comes in a series of visions that come to Zechariah. Well, this is centuries later. This, this comes centuries later while the second temple is under construction. Why a second temple? Because the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And Zechariah, who is a prophet, he and Haggai are contemporaries. You can read their two prophecies together, Zechariah and Haggai. They're exact contemporaries in Jerusalem speaking of exactly the same things at the same time, the same fundamental issues. And Zechariah spoke also of a Davidic king who would have a priestly rule which echoes the Davidic covenant in which now he's proclaiming that this king priest would complete the work of building Yahweh's sanctuary. Remember, that was what the Davidic covenant was all about, was God's house. David wanted to build the Lord a house. He said, no, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a royal household. And in connection with that household, in connection with this particular son, my house will be built. So now as they're building the second temple, Zechariah refers back to that Davidic promise and associates it again with this kind of kingly, priestly individual whom he calls the branch. So God made his covenant with David. David wanted to build a Lord, the Lord a house in Jerusalem. God said, no, not you but a son to come from you will build my house. Well, it had its first fulfillment, physical fulfillment in David's son, Solomon. Solomon built the Jerusalem temple, but it only lasted for about 400 years. And the Babylonians destroyed it. They tore it to the ground and they burned the city of Jerusalem. So the city of David, the throne of God's kingdom, where both God's king and God himself was enthroned, all of that was done away. David's house and throne and kingdom were destroyed. The end of it was 586 BC. And Jerusalem sat desolate, the temple unbuilt. The temple was unbuilt for 70 years. Recall again a 70-year desolation that was decreed. So from 586 to 516 is the span in which the temple didn't exist well Cyrus the Persian king issues a decree that exiles from uh, who've been deported to Babylon can return to Judea and they can rebuild the city and the temple the first thing they do after they establish their own residences is they start to rebuild the temple that's 520 AD it was destroyed in 586 and they build for four years And it's during that time when they were building the temple that Zechariah is prophesying and Haggai as well. So it's with that project in view that Zechariah is issuing this particular prophecy. I call it a physical prophecy because God told his prophet to go do something in the sight of the people and then interpret that action to them. It wasn't just words. It was a physical action that then he said, interpret this to the people. Well, what was that prophecy? He, it involved Zechariah crowning the high priest. Joshua was the high priest at that time. And interestingly, they make a crown with gold and silver brought from Babylon. 
that the people gave, but it was from the nations, right? They, he, build, he makes a crown and then he sets it on the head of the high priest in the sight of the people and he says, behold the branch. The crowned high priest. This is the branch, the shoot. And he will branch out from where he is. He will spring up and he will branch out and he will build the house of the Lord. They're building the temple in Jerusalem. They're building the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, this one, the branch, is the one who will build the house. And right before that, you've had the vision of, again, the olive tree, remember, and the oil, and, the, and, and not by uh, might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This one, Zerubbabel, will put the capstone in the temple to shouts of grace, grace to it. It's about the finishing of the temple. Why is that important? Because if you go back and you read in Ezra, from the time they started trying to rebuild the temple till it was done, it was opposition. And the work was halted. They were persecuted. They were pressed. And they were discouraged. In, in, in Haggai's uh, context, he actually is sent to them to try to encourage them to c- carry on with the work. They've been beaten down. They've been persecuted. The work's been stopped. And on top of that, what they're building looks like nothing, even to the point where they're saying, what's the point? Even if we finish this temple, this is like a pale shadow of the glory of Solomon's temple. There were still some uh, exiles now in Judea who had remembered Solomon's temple. It was 70 years later. There were some who were old enough to remember it. And the prophet says, look, and how does this appear to you in comparison? Doesn't it appear to be nothing? Those of you who remember the glory of Solomon's temple. And yet the Lord says, keep building. Keep building. But it's in that context that Zechariah crowns the high priest. And he says, he will build the house. Thinking back again on the Davidic covenant. And how the house of God will be built. What really that house is about. And interestingly what is said there is that this one will build the house as a priest upon his throne. And in the context of building the house of God as a priest upon his throne. Men will come from distant places and they will build into the house. If you look at Zechariah 6 it can kind of be misleading because at least in the New American Standard, which I'm reading from, it says in verse 12, he will build the temple of the Lord. And then if you look back in verse, or down in verse 15, it says, and those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. But in Hebrew, there's an important distinction. The branch builds the house. These who come from distant places build into the temple. They are co-laborers in that process of building. And what will come to become clear is that they not only build into that temple as co-laborers to the king priest who's building the house on his throne, but they themselves are built into it. They become stones in that. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, right? Isaiah will say that. So these images are all kind of weaving together. The the branch as the enthroned king priest will build Yahweh's house, but men from all over will come and have a part in that. 
not only as co-labors, but as themselves being built into that house. And think about Paul's statement. We are being together built into a living sanctuary, right? The dwelling of God in the spirit. See where all this is going to go. So again, under duress, they're, they're just, they're wanting to give up. But through Haggai, Yahweh exhorts the people to be enthusiastic, to be of good cheer, zealous in their labors. Not because this temple they're building in its physical appearance or size or grandeur is going to be glorious in comparison with Solomon's temple, but because of the destiny he has appointed for it. It will be more glorious than Solomon's temple because of the glory he's appointed for it. This latter house, this latter temple would be the house to which Yahweh would return when he came and ended Israel's exile, when he purged the nation's covenant guilt, when he renewed his covenant relationship with them. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the angel of the covenant, right? The messenger of the covenant. And when Yahweh restored the Abrahamic household, then they would undertake their covenant mission to mediate his blessing to all the earth. And so thus the prophet says, Yahweh will shake the nations in order to gather their precious value into his house. So to fill it with the glory that will vastly transcend the glory of Solomon's temple. God had in the first instance gathered in the wealth of the nations to build the tabernacle. Where did the stuff come from? The bronze, the gold, the, the fabrics, the materials to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. It came from Egypt. God plundered the Egyptians. And where did the stuff come from to build the first temple? From David's lordship and the tribute paid to him by the nations. David gathered the stuff from the nations that that temple was built from. And where did the stuff come from to build the second temple? It came back from Babylon and even from Cyrus' own decree. He said to the lords of the provinces in his kingdom, give them what they need to build this house, the wealth of the nations. And so it would be with the everlasting sanctuary. Men will come from distant places and build into the house of the Lord. So if you look at Haggai real quick in chapter 2, again, a contemporary dealing with exactly the same things. We'll read this and you can see it with your own eyes. Pick this up at um, chapter 2. We'll just pick it up at verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the ruler he was the Davidite. He was the ruler of among the exiles. Joshua was the high priest. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, those who have come back to Judea, saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, ruler and priest together, the high priest. All of you people of the land, take courage, declares Yahweh. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. It was the spirit who led Israel through the wilderness into his sanctuary land. And that spirit is still working in your midst to build my house. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I'm going to shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations, and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declared the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I shall give peace declares the Lord of hosts. You see how these themes keep working together? Yahweh would build his, he would see that his house was built through this son of David, who would be a priest and a king. He would do this work of enthroning Yahweh and building his house as a priest king. And he would do it through co-laborers who would build into the house and themselves be built into it. And this would occur in the context of peace. The Lord would bring peace. So Zechariah's prophecy illumined the fact that Yahweh's intent to gather the earth's inhabitants to his dwelling place was for the purpose of building his ultimate sanctuary, which work he would accomplish in David's branch. The branch of David would build Yahweh's house as a priest upon his throne, but drawing in people from all mankind to co-labor with him, even as they would be built into that house. So just some quick points of conclusion then. Again, what we should take from this is that David is the point in the salvation history, the Israelite history at which the priestly function is directly connected with the regal function. David's kingship and the covenant has to do with this idea of a regal function, but the priesthood gets woven in there. And that regal and priestly dynamic take us all the way back to the creation account. As I said, the regal idea of man's role comes in at the very beginning. It's then kind of brought to the forefront with the Abrahamic covenant that God would bring forth from Abraham royal offspring, princes and kings would come forth from him. And then it gets localized in Jacob with the blessing that he put, declares on his son Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah till Shiloh comes, the one to whom it belongs. It will remain with Judah until the son of Judah who is Shiloh comes and it will sit with him forever, the one to whom it belongs, a son of Judah. And that blessing was later realized when David gave the scepter to David, the son of Judah, right, of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he was his anointed Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs. Well, the priestly motif, as I said, also had its origin in Eden. And it comes out also and then in Israel's own calling as the Abrahamic people. Why? Because they are to mediate God's blessing to all the families of the earth. That's a priestly function. So the concept of a royal priesthood was fundamental to the Abrahamic covenant, even as it looks back to and defines the human vocation in God's design for his creation which design is the reason for establishing his relationship with Abraham? Remember that old rabbinical statement that if Adam gets it wrong, I'll raise up Abraham to put things right. Abraham was the one through whom the human race and ultimately the whole creation would become what God intended it to become. The human race would finally become a royal priesthood. 
So the Sinai covenant was the way then in which that royal priestly function that was bound up in Abraham on behalf of the world was to be carried out and understood in Israel's own life. But as I said, the Sinai covenant also put a, an unbridgeable barrier between the kingship and the priesthood. It's interesting that Israel, the covenant established them as a royal priesthood, and yet God put a barrier between the priesthood and the kingship. Israel, the royal priesthood, whose royal priesthood was epitomized in the king, those two offices were completely separated by that same covenant. So God was setting up a kind of tension. Israel as son was to be a royal priesthood, and yet it was impossible for the same person to be a king and a priest. And what that tells us then is that God's intent that Israel was to serve was not to be realized in Israel's own existence under that covenant. That covenant and that relationship and that structure and that function were non-ultimate. It would have to be replaced by a new order in which there would be such a thing as a king-priest. Israel's status as priest-king hadn't been realized and couldn't been realized. Even David wasn't technically a priest. He did minister as a priest, at least on that one occasion, but he wasn't technically a priest. There was no such thing as a priest-king in Israel, and there never would be under that order of the Israelite covenant. It would not be realized in, in actuality until a time of covenant renewal would come that would see that order replaced. That's how Psalm 110 and Zechariah 6, and I would argue Zechariah 3, and other of these sorts of passages feed into this understanding of the Davidic covenant. What God had pledged to David in his covenant with him would not be fulfilled under the present covenant. David himself was king under the Israelite covenant, right? The, the Sinai covenant. It wouldn't be fulfilled under that order, that theocratic structure. It looked to a future time and a regal son who would hold an everlasting priesthood according to a new priestly order represented by the priest king Melchizedek who wasn't of the line of Abraham and wasn't of the line of Aaron. He was not of that order. His very name means king of righteousness, but he was the king of ancient Jerusalem and priest of God most high is the way the text introduces him. So Yahweh would unite the kingship and the priesthood in the son promised to David and in that way fulfill Israel's identity and vocation as royal priesthood. And through that son of David who becomes God's true Israel, he would establish peace and build his everlasting sanctuary just as he pledged, filling the earth with his glory through the priestly rule of his image children. If we want to know what the gospel is that has come in Jesus the Messiah, this is it. God has been faithful to his purposes. What he spoke of, what he presented in very beginning uh, um, germinal form in the creation, and what he worked towards through the whole of the Old Testament history with Israel at the center was this. And that's why, as I said, I want to close with Revelation 5, and then we'll close with a song 
But in this vision uh, where John sees the Lord exalted, lifted, sitting on his throne. But he, he sees, well, I'll just read this section to you. This is Revelation chapter 5. We'll pick it up at verse 1. And he sees the Lord sitting on the throne holding a scroll. And this scroll represents God's purpose for his creation, God's decree, God's design. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, a scroll sealed up with seven seals. It's completely sealed. It's not open. Someone has to be able to open up that complete closure. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's worthy? Is there anyone worthy? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. No one could open up and unfold and bring to realization God's purpose for the world. And John says, when I realize this, in a sense that all hope is lost, God's intent for the creation cannot be realized. He says, I began to weep greatly. This is the idea of crying and wailing. And, you know, this is an intense show of emotion. This isn't just a little tear trickling down his cheek. This is how seriously he recognizes the implications of this. No one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And he's wailing. And one of the elders says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is the root of David, the root of David the one who stands back of David, who David's own life and kingship had their premise in, right? He's the root of David as well as the stem of David. He has overcome so as to open the book, the scroll and its seven seals. And I looked and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. Behold, the lion of Judah appearing as a lamb who's been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, this is a visionary scene. It's not to be taken in the strict physical, literal sense, which are the sevenfold spirits of God, uh, spirit of God sent into all the earth. And he came, this one, this Davidite who has overcome. And he took out of the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a song that could not be sung before this triumph saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. And you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign on the earth. God's purposes will be realized. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the numbers of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, all crying out with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing that is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, everything in the created order, 
And all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen. It is true, it is true, it is true. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The whole creation is loudly exclaiming the triumph of God in this son of David. The glory, the destiny of the creation is realized. Kings and priests to our God. This is the gospel. Well, let me close in prayer, um, and then we'll sing this song. Hopefully, it'll bring our minds to around this these things that we've been uh, speaking of. But let's pray. Father, as always, I know I can say there's a lot in these things, but I pray that you would cause them to be simple in our hearts in the sense that they produce in us a, pro- a profound sense of glory, a profound sense of gratitude and awe, of humble joy. Father, I pray that we are like all of the creatures gathered in that worship scene that John saw, that we too recognize in a creation in which none is worthy to see your purposes for the world fulfilled. One has been found worthy. The one who is the incarnate one, the son of David. That in truth, our God has solved the creation's problem and brought it to its place of renewal and fulfillment of its destiny. You have done that work by entering the world in your son in order to take up that challenge and that mission in yourself to become the king priest for the sake of your creation, that we, your people, your image children, should be priests and kings to our God. Father, I pray that we would live faithfully to this mission, to this calling, to this identity. We're not just saved people who are forgiven and hanging out in this life waiting to go off to heaven. We have been raised up in Christ, seated in the heavenly places in him, made alive in him, and given everything that pertains to life and godliness, that we would be co-laborers with your spirit in this priestly regal mission of bringing about and, and furthering new creation in this world. May we be instruments, testifiers, agents of new creation. In a very real way, Father, we are the gospel. We embody in ourselves, and certainly together as your church, we embody the gospel we proclaim. If we don't embody that gospel, then we have no gospel testimony. And so I pray that you would help each of us to, even as the Israelites needed to be renewed and encouraged, strengthened in their zeal and their resolve to continue building, I pray that we, as those who've been brought near to build into your sanctuary, being built on the foundation of Christ with living stones that you bring to yourself, I pray that we would be renewed in our vigor and our encouragement, our zeal, to be co-laborers with your spirit, to be builders into that sanctuary, even as we ourselves have been made to be stones in it. So I pray for each one, Father, here, that you would minister these things to them such that they would be encouraged and they would be strengthened. Teach us not just for the sake of our understanding, but for the sake of our transformation. For we know that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let your perfect work 
have its full fruition. And may we be zealous to walk in your spirit, always striving to be yielded to the work that he is doing, not just in us as individuals, not even just through us as individuals, but collectively as we are a part of this building of a sanctuary that will one day take the whole creation into its grasp. Give us a glorious, a compelling sight of this vision, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.